What is going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders. I have a couple of things to tell you before we get into today's episode. First of all, you might have noticed I'm not doing daily episodes anymore. I've only done two episodes in the last two weeks. Well, the reason for this is because is, is a couple of things. The first thing is I recently accepted a full-time role at my job, Prenda, which means I'm a lot more busy than I was a month ago. But second, I'm also figuring out a way to slightly rebrand and reposition the podcast to better reflect what I'm working on now. And you will see changes in the next couple of weeks or months reflecting this, but ultimately all the podcasts moving forward are going to be under the umbrella of Growth Meter Radio. What is Growth Meter? Growth Meter is a tool I built with Adalo, which is a no-code tool that pretty much is a crunch base for startup updates. What this means is a startup can sign up and and then report on their growth every single week. And then investors can search through growth updates and filter by growth rate, filter by geo, anything like that. And the whole goal of this is to help more companies outside of San Francisco get access to San Francisco and New York capital. That's it. And I'm kind of going to shift the podcast slowly to be under that umbrella. So I just wanted to give you that update. Nothing else is really changing. I hope to be increasing the, the, the number of episodes I do in the next couple of weeks, although I'm still getting used to it. But just wanted to check in, tell you what's up, tell you all that I love you. And with that, let's get into the next episode of Forward Thinking Founders, sponsored by Growth Meter Radio. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we talk to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to John Malinovich, who is the co-founder, creator of Plato Design. John, welcome to the show. How's it going? I'm doing very well, Matt. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, I am. I'm excited to have you on. When we got connected, uh, you know, whenever it was, and I and uh, I checked out your site, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is exciting! I this is like, this is future of work, but specifically gig economy stuff, and that is stuff I could talk about literally all day. So I'm stoked to have you on. Before we, but before we kind of go into that, st- you know, that world and talk about industry, let's just talk about what you're working on with Plato Design. Can you describe to the listeners uh, what you're working on? Yeah, sure. So Plato is a tech-enabled design agency that specializes in brand, web, and product design for startups. Really, what we realized was that every company in the world needs design, but no one can actually get access to it at the price, the speed, or the quality that they need when they need it. So we really saw that as an opportunity to combine uh, different software and machine learning techniques with the best of uh, human creativity to reinvent this entire model in terms of how we actually uh, deliver and innovate on design services. So as a lot of the people listening know, and as I just mentioned to you, uh, this is a type of model that is near and dear to my heart because I worked on something as again as like a lot of you might know called Publoft for three years and like this mm-hmm. this world is so fun and I'm so stoked to be kind of like dipping back into it. Um, so a couple a couple of questions. Um, I'd love to uh, get an idea from so you're, you're positioning yourself like an agency, but you're using technology, machine learning software to potentially improve or augment the process. Can you kind of go into what makes you different from just like your standard agency down the block, brick and mortar, you know, just your standard design agency, like kind of what are some of the ways that use technology to to help uh, make you better? Yeah, definitely. We think about that the highest level, the types of technology you can build to improve the creative process as back office and front office work. So what we mean by this back office is really everything that isn't design itself. So imagine, you know, the billing, the finance, the project management, the communication with clients, knowing where your files are. And the front office is actually the design work itself. So this is everything from the creative decisioning that's being made as well as the actual uh, production of uh, ideas themselves. So really the first parts that we decided to really you know, chunk off and tackle were the back office work. So meaning how do you just ultimately have more of your OPEX and more of your human time spent on design work versus on everything else? Some of the more uh, exciting and, and kind of conceptually uh, interesting things, I think, other than just these brass tacks that you have to have to be really successful, 
are actually how we actually start to use technology to influence and augment the creative process. So, so two, two of the, the places that we have done this so far, first are actually in some of the creative decisioning. So how do we actually understand what design decisions should be made in the first place? Uh, one of the things that we realized was that, you know, every graphic design or every web design, every company that has a website exists online. However, no one has ever actually crawled the web through the lens of trying to understand what does design decisions have people made. It's actually one of the initiatives that we've undertake that leans on our background as machine learning and search experts from places like Pinterest, Google, and our last startup, URX, was to actually go and crawl the top 150,000 internet properties and actually then start to digest their design decisions. You know, what are their logos? What are the fonts and the colors that they use? What are screenshots of their website? And ultimately, how do we take this, this index of design decisions and make that be available to creatives within the creative process? So this is something that we've actually realized that whether or not the technology existed, people actually spend their time doing by going and manually looking at all these websites or doing what people would call like a brand sweep to actually understand and explain to clients why the decisions that they're making are actually being made. So this is one big effort that we've undertook on the creative decisioning side. On the actual uh, production design side, one of the things that we are actually now just starting to cut ground on is actually programmatically generating variants of different design decisions to actually expose to clients so that ultimately as a creative, people can sh show more examples of an idea faster without actually having to do all of them by hand. So again, when you take a big step back, you have this back office work, which is the non-design side of the house, and you have this front office work, which is the actual design itself. What we've tried to really innovate on with Play-Doh is first, again, building that foundation for the back office so that we don't have to actually bloat our OPEX in the way that a traditional design agency would by hiring all of these non-design roles. And then second, really start to layer in a lot of this front office work and the creative decisioning and the production design itself. For us, being able to take this kind of two-pronged approach has been something that we've uh, found a lot of success with over the last 18 months. Okay, so a couple of questions on both sides. On on the the former, um, so I'm obviously I'm familiar with the idea of like scraping web pages for the content on it, but I have never heard of the idea of like scraping for a brand. Are you like scraping CSS files, or can you kind of describe? How do you scrape 150,000 of the top sites design and brand? How do you do that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, good, good question. So there's a couple different parts to it. Really, if you think of the elements that go into a brand guide. So at the highest level, you know, you have your logo type, your logo mark, you have your primary fonts, your primary colors, and, and you know, maybe then you have some uh, uh, ancillary graphics such as illustrations and whatnot. So if you really, if you think about trying to create the brand guide for a website, really what you're doing is going and, you know, finding their favicon or finding the icon on the page. You're going and, again, yeah, looking at their CSS files to actually pull out some of the different, uh, you know, fonts and colors that people are using. And ultimately then, uh, you know, indexing that and actually creating a page for that as structured data about a given brand. So you can then go and search for LinkedIn and see, hey, what is LinkedIn's logo? What are other visually similar logos to this? What, what fonts, what colors did they use? Um, so yeah, it's one of the things that we've kind of been really excited about is almost looking past the content to the way the content was represented was something that you know, we seem to be uh, quite novel in this space because no one's actually focused on trying to build a, a large corpus of uh, design assets before and actually structuring it in a way that can be used by designers. Um, so, but yeah, the, some of the techniques that you mentioned, looking at CSS files, you know, actually uh, downloading all of the image assets, you know, running some various computer vision models on them to just understand, you know, uh, their similarity to other other images and things like that. Uh, we kind of took that as just a base step to at least, you know, get the ball rolling and figure out how could this actually be useful within the design workflow. And a couple more questions on that. Mainly, uh, and I'm, pro I'm probably going to get like fairly detailed here. The main reason is because you got a shit ton of startup founders listening that probably that probably could use 
like something like this, just like a bunch of startup founders could probably use something like Publoft, which was like content. It's like, like this, sure. like you, you pretty much have like an interesting model for startups, which is why I specifically want to go pretty detailed for the people, the people listening for your benefit. Uh, hopefully like they, they either find value or they don't, but at least they know what you do exactly. So like you, you, what has, so, so I guess I, I, I don't understand what the value is other than establishing a baseline of scraping sites. So let's say I wanted to work with you and like I might one day because like I don't have a brand for my podcast. Mm -hmm. I don't have anything. I literally have nothing. I have a picture from Unsplash, which is beautiful. And that's pretty much it. So let's like actually walk through, yo, like let's say I have a budget of whatever, whatever this costs. We can go into that later or we don't have to. Let's say I have the budget. What would you scrape? What would be that big first step if we were to work together? What would you scrape if, like, I don't even have a website yet? Would we skip that step, or would we? Would you scrape like similar podcasts to mine? Like, I guess, how do you think about that? Yeah. So these, I think, a key thing to call out is this kind of scraping and indexing is something that's really decoupled from the individual client workflow. It's just something that happens in the background and that we're doing kind of all the time to actually inform again a lot of this creative decisioning. Got so for it. all practical to the client uh, today that's actually somewhat opaque. You, you can imagine uh, in the future, and actually some of the features that we're working on now are actually more of an interactive quiz that would let you know Matt, uh, when he signs up, actually walk through and, and explain to us, hey, do you like this aesthetic or do you like this aesthetic? Do you like this kind of uh, set of fonts or that set of fonts? Hey, here's given your industry, here's five other examples of companies that... Uh, that you know, and here's what they look like. Which of these do you like, or which of these that you don't do you not like? So you can imagine by actually having this baseline of this kind of information about the design decisions that other people have made. First order, we're able to just actually understand like what else is out there, what does it look like, how does that relate to what we're designing. But second, how do we actually uh, capture preferences from our clients to actually help inform what we design? Because today, every agency maybe has this Google form or a you know, Google Doc that they have their clients fill out. But we've seen that actually doesn't always capture super high information because you're what you're expecting the client to be able to know how to answer questions about design, but they might not actually be a designer. So we figured by actually making this be something that was a lot more kind of visual, as we all know, picture is worth a thousand words. It's a lot easier for a user to, you know, convey their preferences by uh, explaining what they like or what they don't like versus actually asking them what, five words describe your brand voice, for example. It's so funny. There's so many similarities between what you're saying and Mike's. Like, the, I think the, the number one innovation in this space, regardless of if it's design, content, co you know, just services, it, the company, maybe it'll be you, but like the company that figures out how to get what the client wants on a page and have the people delivering the services look at that page and see the same thing that is a trillion dollar company and that is a hard problem to solve. Um, we actually might go into that later, but let's, let, let's keep going down this. So, so I'm actually curious. So um, let's like pretend like I'm a potential customer. I literally don't have a brand yet. Like I'm actually legitimately curious. Like how does someone interact with Play-Doh? Um, what are ways that a, a company could engage? Is it high touch, low touch? Uh, is it stock? You know, can you just kind of describe a little more how it works? Yeah, sure. So the first Thing that we do is just try to get some high level understanding of what your project is in terms of its scope your timelines and your budgets just to kind of get a sense of what we're working for here when we first started we let out with a kind of traditionally priced you know very very bespoke extremely high touch design service because we realized really in this space companies live and die by their quality so there's, for the companies that have the budget and the time to actually go after, you know, a project that might take around a month, six weeks, you know, going for, you know, big go-to-market push, you know, that would be, we kind of steer them in that direction. Whereas if companies maybe have, are more budget constrained or are looking for maybe a little bit of a narrow set of services, we're able to either match them with a creative within our global creative network or actually uh, have them test one of our new products, which is our kind of branding light package, which is actually a, more of a, a generative design based approach where we're able to take some of this kind of global knowledge of design decisions that we've mentioned before and actually combine that with different uh, parametric and generative design techniques to actually put the client in the driver's seat and actually kind of help uh, design some of their brand themselves with some of the, with the help of the designer. 
So based on, you know, that first kind of touch with a client through our website, we'll either, you know, get on a phone with them and just to understand and flesh out the full scope of what they need. Because again, a lot of times somebody says, hey, they need a website, but it actually turns out they don't just need a website. They need a brand first. They need a website. Oh, by the way, they also need all this other collateral for the other touch points in their go-to-market. So we really want to make sure that there's a human in the loop, especially in this first kind of consultative phase and discovery phase to make sure we understand really what, in this case, you know, Matt and forward thinking founders was looking for. So once we have that kind of full suite of, and scope of work, then kind of the, the magic starts to happen and we'll actually start, uh, you know, uh, kicking off the design process first with a, with a research phase, going and understanding as much about uh, you as an individual and some of your, you know, your preferences stylistically, your industry and all the competitors in that industry, what they're doing, uh, you know, who your customers are and what they're primed and used to seeing. And based on kind of these three different kind of uh, stylistic uh, vectors, if you will, we're able to start to approximate what the right kind of uh, uh, part of the overall set of permutations might look like. And then that's how we start to really narrow in and present you with, with different design decisions. Uh, we figured out, figured out how do you actually dematerialize the design process into a discrete, discrete set of steps and actually have a data model that generalizes across any type of design project. So really, any design project will be a part of a design engagement. So an engagement might have multiple projects in it. Every project will then have multiple deliverables in it. So for example, a website project will start with a copywriting deliverable, and then we'll have a web design deliverable, some, an illustration deliverable, and a web development deliverable. And each of those deliverables will be worked on in different uh, rounds or revisions. So, so really within this kind of this set of, of components, we're able to then work sequentially on things that need to be worked on sequentially by. We can also work in parallel on things once we have some base layers in place. But really the, the key thing here is we need to actually understand what the data model is, if you will, for the project to actually kick it off. So again, based on the scope, we can figure out what the actual project plan needs to look like. Based on the budget, we can figure out which of these three different pricing tiers of this like you know high class, uh, highly bespoke design, this direct to freelancer model, or this more generative approach we should take to meet your needs. Yeah, that that makes sense. It's definitely flexible. I have a question that I can't I can't avoid, although it might be a hard question to answer, but I have to ask it. Would you consider what what would you consider yourself a like are you a, would you say you're a, a startup or would are you like a business or are you like how would you class how would you classify yourself the only reason i ask is because one i wouldn't ask if i didn't understand this space so well and i like i also grappled with this question for a while so i'm, I'm just curious to get your thoughts openly how would you classify yourself i would say Certainly a business first and a startup second. <laughs> I, uh, I, was, I was joking with our co-founders on this. That we actually, it's the same co-founding team for, for this company as it was for our last company, which was called URX, which ended up being acquired by Pinterest about three years ago. Uh, and what we kind of realized or, or how we self-identified was that the first time around, we were really thinking about building a startup and creating a product. Whereas now we're actually very focused on building a, a business. And certainly the, the techniques, the tactics are the same. We're still building software. We're still uh, doing a lot of the same day-to-day uh, -day tactics as we were before. The key difference is that we're very focused on uh, actually building something that produces a, produces a profit. And I think that's, again, the key difference uh, I think between maybe a startup and a business, at least at the simplest level, I, I like pres prescribe to Steve Blank's definition of a startup, which is a temporary entity in search of a scalable and repeatable business model. So I guess by that definition at this point, we are a business, but I think we still certainly act as a startup in terms of you know, making decisions quickly, uh, testing lots of things, experimenting, uh, all that, call it general startup uh, pedagogy, are things that we certainly you know, care about and 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 do ourselves. But I think, again, for us, the, the goal is to build an incredibly high quality design for our clients so that we can build a, a sustaining business. Yeah, that's, um, you definitely, yeah, th that's awesome. I like that a lot. Um, I would actually throw in another, another an additional definition um, to start up. I agree with uh, Steve Blanks. I reference it a lot. 
But there's also a simple one that, um, that I believe is Paul Graham's, or it might be Sam Almond's, but it's like a YC camp. But it's just like a startup is something that's just meant to grow quickly. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> like, that's like, that's pretty, like, if you, if you plan to grow, then, uh, and you're actually doing it, um, then, then you're a startup. And if you don't plan to grow, that's fine. But like, maybe, you know, and that's, um, I don't know, it's just, it's, inter- it's interesting because, like, if you don't mind me asking, um, how, like, like how, I mean, if, you, wow, that was ridiculous. I was like 17 little syllables there. How do people think when you when you go reach out to startups and you and you use you, you go through your customer acquisition channels? What's the standard uh, response that you get from like most people? What I mean by that is like how do you acquire customers? Because um, I feel like everyone needs something like this, and you definitely have like your head on straight, which means like I wouldn't be surprised if everyone's running into you. Um, I guess can you tell me a little bit about uh, how you acquire customers? No, yeah, that's that's great, and, and maybe that actually I love that. You know, I think it was a one of those pithy Paul Graham blog post titles where I think it was literally startup equals growth. <laughs> and, That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, and it's, so I think by that definition, we're we're certainly a startup. Uh, and I think one of the ex- the exciting things for us is that, and again, a humbling thing is really our primary acquisition channel has been customer referrals. Uh, I think part of this, and that's part of why we've actually ended up having these three different pricing models. So again, this more traditional, highly bespoke, this uh, freelancer approach and this more generative approach. Because what we've realized was, you know, no matter what in this space, quality is what you will live and die by. If you, if you can't have that leg to stand on, you, you will fail no matter what. You can't build a good design business if you don't have great quality. Um, so for us, what, we, what we're realizing is that really by actually focusing on quality, you have to sacrifice either speed or price. So for us, by having the highest quality in this this traditional camp, we're also, uh, you know, it comes at a higher price point than maybe a pre-seed or seed stage startup might need. But that doesn't mean that we don't want to service those companies. So we've realized, in addition to this, again, like hype tier, we're introducing these different price points so that we can kind of play across the entire supply-demand yield curve. Um, so really, so each of these three pricing price products have different means of, of customer acquisition. So in particular for this, this high, high class design, high brow design, if you will, which we kind of joke about, uh, but it's again, great stuff. Uh, can't, can't speak highly enough of it. Part of, you know, where we're focused on that is all through, you know, word of mouth and referrals. Cause again, the best part about uh, when you're branding a startup is you're actually giving a brand to the founders themselves. And if you do a great job, you know, they're not just having this on their, their website, they're putting it on their t-shirts. It's on their, you know, it's the sticker on their computers. It's certainly their website. It's their advertisements. Your brand, your kind of brand grows by proxy by those companies growing as well. So I think for us, we found that to be highly, highly successful. And actually for the first, call it 15 or 16 months of our company, we were at com- complete uh, capacity constraint just because we had so much inbound word of mouth. Uh, for the, some of these uh, different tiered products, we're actually what we're able to do is, again, come up with different channel strategies for this. So actually what we've realized in the sales cycle for design ends up being a lot more like selling prescription drugs than it is like selling, you know, vitamins in that, you know, we're not going to shove, you know, antibiotics down somebody's throat if they're not sick. But as soon as somebody actually knows that they need design, we want to be the person that helps them, helps them get it. Um, So for us, a lot of this ends up being creating, you know, really strong kind of uh, brand marketing through, again, kind of being at all the touch points that startups go to and that startups know about through, you know, venture capitalists, through software development shops, through, uh, all of the different incubators and accelerator programs. And for us, actually, by creating that kind of, you know, broad-based uh, approach on the channel side, we've had a lot of success with that. And I'd say the third piece, which has been also really successful for us since we launched it uh, earlier this year, was actually just a, a more traditional affiliate and referral program. Because what we realized was that even though, you know, uh, not everybody was in market for design when we would touch them, Oftentimes, people would go and ask their friends when they did need design. So actually, it was much, it's much easier for us to arm, uh, you know, and empower an army of people to be referrers and actually uh, brand ambassadors for Plato than it is for us to go and touch everybody at that point of need. Um, so again, for us, those three main channels, 
word of mouth referrals channel and kind of uh, ambassador and affiliate programs have been, you know, really, really successful with us. And we also then kind of lay a, a traditional foundation with, you know, paid advertisements online through things like, you know, Facebook, AdWords, and then, you know, retargeting and whatnot. You really know what you're doing. Um, like you're, like you're, it's really awesome to hear because I want to get into the, into the actual larger space uh, now just because this is something I, I just care so much about. Um, and I want to start with your middle tier on the supply side. If you're open to talking about it, this is like a, uh, because my whole, you know, the last three years was pretty much working with freelancers and recruiting thousands um, to join, to join our network. How do you, how do you find people to join yours? Um, it, it, it seems like a lot of people are trying to do what you're doing in different verticals and different, you know, everyone's trying to like get freelancers, but no one's figured out how to like really satisfy them. So how do you convince them to join you? Yeah, definitely. For us, again, the, what we've realized is the, if you just think of the, the stack rank pain points that freelancers have, number one is they want re reliable work that they get paid for at a fair wage and they get paid on time. So realize no matter what, if we can actually fulfill our demand side value proposition of creating just awesome work for clients, that creates the flywheel of getting more great work, which actually helps us bring in more great freelancers. So I'd say that first and foremost is just, you know, being, you know, having great work for, for freelancers has been, you know, the best way for us to get more, which maybe is like, you know, intuitive, right? I think the second piece was just, you know, having all roads lead to Plato, right? So there's, you know, three or four major places where they already have awesome freelancer communities online. And by actually just becoming a good tenant and a, and a members of those places, be it the, you know, Behance, Dribble, Working, Not Working, Instagrams of the world, and actually building, you know, and a, an, an organic presence there and actually contributing to the communities, not just trying to uh, take advantage of them, if you will, not just putting up a job ad, but actually having great content. So by kind of having a two prong approach there, we've actually been, you know, really successful at getting at this point, I believe 15 to 20,000 creatives to apply to, to, you know, be a part of Plato's network again, which is again, a really humbling thing that we have a tremendous amount of gratitude for because again, you know, people are, are trusting us to be there, to be their agents in a way. I think at this point, we're not quite able to, to service uh, 20, you know, 15 or 20,000 creatives. So we do have to screen for uh, individuals and, and really be, uh, have a really scrutinizing eye to make sure we're bringing the right people in, especially given how much trust our clients give us. We mentioned earlier some of these, these techniques around uh, crawling and indexing the world's design and trying to understand similarity between things we've actually uh, started to devise and prototype methods of using that same technology to actually help us better understand people's portfolios that they submit. So for example, it's all, it's near impossible for a human to go through 15,000 creative profiles. But if we were able to actually want to find all of the freelancers who could execute on a Slack like style, if you will, you can imagine that ends up being, you know, a much more tractable problem where we could actually take, you know, 15,000 candidates from a, a thinking about it from an informatics standpoint, and maybe get that cut that down to maybe the 100 or 200 who can most successfully execute within that style. So for us, again, a lot of what we're, we're thinking about is how do we use uh, programmatic methods to actually uh, slice and dice all of these, the, the, the creatives in our network by proxy of the actual work that they've done in the past. Uh, so for us, again, part of the key thing here is just maintaining quality on both sides of the marketplace is actually making sure that we have, you know, great leads for, for the supply side so we can continue to create great work for the demand side, but also then, you know, as a key, making sure that we're pairing the right creatives with the right clients. Uh, and again, this is something that we do by understanding what somebody's stylist, stylistic preferences are, what the type of work is, what, you know, what the priors are for a creative and, and whether they were successful or not successful on prior projects, things like that. So I want to dive into the fact that you're obviously not able to service all 15, 20,000 freelancers. We, we had a similar problem. It wasn't 15, 20,000, but it was at one to 2,000. So it was still like amounts um, that we couldn't service all. We could only service maybe like two to 3%. Do you, what, what do you do with the ones that you keep, don't give work to? Do you keep them engaged so they, so they remember your brand when you do have them? This was actually a unique problem 
that we had. Um, what do you do with the people that you don't give work to immediately? Um, and how do you kind of make sure they stick around for when they, you might have work for them? Yeah, definitely. So there's the, I think maybe traditional or call it, you know, email based approach of drip campaigns and things like that. We do a little bit of that, but we've realized there's really the main reason people want to engage with us is if we have, you know, good news for them, if you will. Part of what we've actually invested a, a little bit of time into is actually trying to create, uh, call it public utilities that are an, an actual software products that maybe these these creatives could use, even if they weren't a part of our creative network. So one of the the these these initiatives is called Aesthetic. So if you actually go to aesthetic.com, you can, it's actually a uh, a logo search engine that you can actually search for a company's logo and actually look at other visually similar logos. Again, this is one of those kind of point problems, you know, that we saw within the the Play-Doh workflow. And something that again it was kind of called a toy problem that could kind of demonstrate some of the technology that we've built in a way that could actually be useful to creatives, even if they weren't directly working with us. And we found this is just as an example, a type of way to keep creatives engaged with us and actually genuinely add value to their lives, even if we're not able to give them work today in hopes that when we do have work for them in the future, they'll, they'll, you know, make times in their busy schedules to, to work with us. Yeah, definitely. Um, Do you, so you obviously can only build so many products and you have your focus and you're probably going to stay, like you're going to keep focusing on what you're focusing on. Um, but I am curious, do you, if you, let's say this business business exited today for the enough money that would make it worth it, obviously not realistic, but just hypothetically, what other areas in freelancer, in the freelancer world would you work on? Or another way of phrasing that question is like, what else does the freelancer ecosystem need? Um, if you were to say there were gaps in the market that you wish people built software to like potentially help fill and make it easier to be a freelancer? Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of infrastructure that's still needed to make, you know, remote work be long-term viable, right? And, and I don't just mean things like letting somebody send, you know, invoices or collect payments across, you know, multiple currencies, but, you know, just even just the fundamentals of like, again, what is the back office that some uh, uh, freelancer uses to run their business, right? If I think there's been things like Stripe Atlas, I think have made great strides in helping people actually, you know, set up their own businesses. But again, to, to my knowledge, that still only helps you create like a Delaware C Corp, right? What are, you know, there's so many th- components of actually running your own business that, you know, are kind of the same across, uh, you know, types of businesses, types of disciplines, call it the business plumbing that really every uh, small business owner or every, you know, freelancer needs. And I think there's still a lot of missing pieces within that space. I think in addition to that, I think there's also just a massive discovery problem and and a, a, a massive issue with actually helping these freelancers find great work. Because, you know, even if the most talented a graphic designer, accountant, you know, architect in the world uh, is a freelancer and open for business. There's no guarantee that they're actually going to to find the right clients to to help them succeed in the in 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 that endeavor. So I think part of this is again, there's a massive I think discovery element to this as well, where there's a pretty big gap between called these you know online communities where uh, designers hang out today, or even you know the you know, visual discovery places like Pinterest and the actual providers of that work. So I think that that's also another kind of big area for opportunity is actually helping drive discovery. Uh, you know, you see companies like Thumbtack who've, who've made great strides in this. You know, you can see that companies like, you know, Dribble do, a, you know, a good job at this within, you know, narrow domains. But I know there's lots of industries where that just isn't the case. Um, so I think, again, on the kind of create the back office side of just running and starting your own business, which again, you don't necessarily have that experience if you haven't done it before, as well as, uh, again, the, the discovery side to actually help new people come through the front door. So there are obviously so many freelancers in the world, and there's only going to be more with younger generations growing up with the internet. It's just kind of the future. And uh, something that baffles me is 
the right now like the the winner like the big winner in in the space is, is upwork and, and fiverr those are two kind of like those are the the googles of of this space and it's unfortunate because there could probably be something better for the freelancers out there and like you're like you're a solution that's chipping away at the specific vertical of design but do, do you have an idea um, and we'll get, get, get go away from specific freelancer in a second but that's my last question on this do you have an idea on why there hasn't been any true legitimate competitors to like an Upwork or Fiverr or a TopTel. Um, and more so, the real question is like, why is building in the freelancer space so hard um, and scaling something, more so like scaling something really big? Um, what about it makes people so hard to like beat Upwork? Yeah, I, th I think the, it's funny, I actually started an Upwork job today. So I, I think they've done a, they've executed really well on, again, kind of building this like, fundamental plumbing layer. However, I think the biggest kind of challenge is that if you look at their their price to earnings ratio now that they're a publicly traded company, that the unfortunate reality is their value they're seen as a basically a labor arbitrage business, right? Which is, you know, uh, buy, you know, buy low, sell high. And unfortunately, that's not something that is uh, seen to have like a tremendously high uh, you know, value to earnings that as a lot of more traditional and pure software businesses, which means that really the, the big just will continue to become bigger in this, in this realm because once you're already at scale, you have just such a tremendous advantage by, uh, just from the, the brand awareness alone to actually help you know, continue to build this kind of an approach. So I think it's, it's really hard to have a startup want to get really excited about you know, competing with somebody who's already at scale, but also uh, doesn't demonstrate a tremendously high uh, financial leverage opportunity. I think the other kind of challenge here, and I think p potentially a challenge and an opportunity, is that again, if you think about just the supply demand and yield curve for any single labor market, as there is more participants, you basically have to be able to participate across that entire curve, meaning there's going to be a very a smaller number of people who are willing to pay a higher price for the same good as there are, and there's going to be a a higher number of people that are willing to pay a lower price for the same good. So when you're offering, you know, a, a core service, like for example, for like lead generation, you know, there's going to be a thousand different people who can fulfill the demand for your demand or that, that job that you have. But the question is how, how many of them can actually do it well? And how do you then actually understand and measure quality? Or how do you differentiate the person who can charge $4 an hour because they live somewhere where that's viable from the person who needs to charge $50 an hour because of where they live? So I think the, the key issue, and I think what we've seen from, again, a lot of these kind of at-scale labor marketplaces is that they end up churning out the top, the kind of their, their highest caliber supply, uh, not necessarily because of demand side issues, but because kind of the market uh, uh, competition kind of necess necessitates it. Um, you know, a client will always want to pay less for the same thing if it's the same quality. And if... That, you know, a global marketplace enables that. Unfortunately, it means that uh, you, over time you kind of converge to a certain type of, of labor or a certain type of demand of supply. So again, I think that the reason it's so hard to kind of topple these are because again, there's just kind of have scale dynamics working for them in a big way. Plus, uh, financial leverage wise, it's not necessarily a, a great business decision if if a startup looks at the entire realm of things they could do. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best place for them to invest their heartbeats. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with every every last thing you said, which breaks my heart because there needs to be. It, it's so hard because it, it isn't. It is not the best business opportunity, and that if you're a startup and you're raising money, you you need like that's what you're kind of looking for. But it's such a massive problem. I actually at, at the tail end of Publoft, I started um, like a boot camp or like a school called Gigloft. Pretty, uh, which is pretty much teaching people how to be freelancers. And it, it had some potential, and I don't really want to get into what happened to it. Very long story. It just threw the wrong time to start it. But there's a small chance I, I try again uh, and, like, do an ISA thing. Like, the freelancers don't have money now, but if I can make them successful, you know, whoo! So it, it, I care about this this world a lot. <laughs> I think that's great. And I think there's another, maybe even adding to some of what the, I mentioned, the kind of creative or the freelancer back office, you know, some of the discovery. I also add to that, I think certainly there's like an up-leveling and education component. So if you can move somebody 
up the you know up the yield curve, if you will. I think that's another big opportunity. I think there's that, like the the Lambda School for freelancers is kind of kind of interesting. I think the other component where I think people have started to innovate in the model a bit are for the types of projects that need more than just one person working on them, and also need a, a you know a heterogeneous set of skills working on it. So as we mentioned, even for Plato, to do like a great website, it's really not like one person, and this is something that it's kind of non-intuitive if you know you're not deep in the design game but again you need like excellent copy which is like something people spend decades doing they literally go to school for like writing in english you know there has to be like great web design and illustration which again is a completely different skill set and obviously like web development which certainly is becoming uh easier and more approachable with a lot of the advancements and things like no code but again those are completely different skill sets and then when you think about something like you know branding which where you have people who've spent their entire careers thinking about you know curating logo marks doing things like brand strategy or you think about uh things like product design which again are completely different discipline again these are like as different as you know a mobile app development you know web app development infrastructure and machine learning right and you can you can't would never expect one engineer to do all of that so i think especially in design imagining how you can actually create teams of people to work on things i think is really interesting and i'd imagine that there's other industries where there's a lot of opportunity for that as well. And you're just bringing me back. Uh, that's what, so that's that, what you're talking about is what Jeremy and I called multiplayer mode. We kind of saw things as like gaming we, we, because of uh, what Pioneer has done, which I'm a huge fan of. And yeah, like we, pretty much multiplayer mode. Like how can you take your, your set of skills and find someone else that has complementary and find the person with money that needs the combination of both of your skills? Like it's so... I might work on this problem in like three years. We'll see, we'll see what happens. But um, yeah, it's, a, it's a it's definitely ripe for for innovation. It is. It's just it, it, is it ripe for a good business model? I guess is is the um, the question. And is it worth putting in the time? If you, I, you know, whatever. I, I just tried it. You know, recently, so I'll give it a few years and give it a shot again. Maybe. Well, I have, I have a few more questions. Um, going back to specifically your company, so. I mean, how do you, there's so many things you could do because it is in services, although software is powering it. You could pretty much say, I want to do this and you could do it without building a bunch of code because it's, it's in some ways services. So how do you think about what to work on next and ultimately where, where, what direction to take Play-Doh? Um, do you have frameworks to think about what, what markets to capture next? Yeah, definitely. And, and I'll, I, I could talk about this maybe in the scope of Play-Doh and then maybe just more generally like framework things. <laughs> I, uh, I like frameworks. <laughs> I, for for Play-Doh in particular, again, what part of our, what we realize, we will again live and die by quality. So the first thing that we absolutely have to get right is making sure that they're, that the work that our clients get is super, super high quality. Um, so really that when we think about uh, these kind of three different price tiers, we almost had to get the, the high high tier things right first before we could even imagine kind of uh, going you know down the, the price curve so the first you know so the way that we actually you know set this up and we have you know true like world-class group of creative directors you know r running the play-doh agency from places you know worked places like nike and apple and uh you know uh new york uh new yorker again kind of like the true like best in class and what we actually realize is that needs to run as kind of its own like PNL, like from a, a business perspective, but also have its own kind of operating entity. So the first thing we want, needed to get right was actually the structural component of how we set up our, that agency to be successful. When you th so the, kind of this is, again, independent of the software component, just getting the actual like a business operations correct is super, super key to make sure that that agency could be successful and, and that the individuals within that agency are actually incentivized in the way that uh, aligns what Plato Corporation needs as well as what they need and what our clients need as well. I think the second component of that is the value proposition to them being this incredible creative network that they can kind of tap into and actually pull folks into uh, and actually, you know, help that work alongside them as they're doing this, this work for clients. Because again, we're not just throwing it over the wall, so to speak. There's this group of creative directors working directly with clients and pulling people in to do more of the specialist specialty work. 
So again, the first kind of phase of the business, let's get this, this set up the right way operationally. Let's have this awesome creative network and have this thing be able that can actually be like truly self-sustaining almost without too much intervention from the co-founder side. Um, so then once we had that, that actually gave us kind of the, those first two tiers. So again, this, this, uh, you know, a high design tier as well as this direct to freelancer tier. So now then uh, again, on the other side of the business and the pure software side, really the efforts now are about actually creating this kind of uh, more approachable design solution that we believe every business in the world should be able to have access to. And our mission as, as a company is to you know, make quality design accessible to every company in the world. And we realize that that's, you know, unfortunately not possible if you have a price point, you know, that's above, you know, five or $10,000 uh, as an entry, right? So we said, okay, how do we, how might we actually take everything that we've learned and everything that we know makes these high, these great projects tick and actually be able to apply that in a way that's maybe more systematized and more of a, a software oriented solution that has closer to a zero marginal cost, meaning it doesn't cost us incrementally more in terms of time or money to, to execute on it so that people could actually either, uh, you know, prototype things themselves or can have a designer in the loop to actually, you know, deliver this for them at a really, really high quality. So again, for us, like our, our, priority really kind of continues to follow the needs of our clients, which again, it ends up being first order. What service offering do we have? And at this point, you know, again, we're able to offer a full suite of brand, full suite of web and full suite of product design services, which really are the three kind of pillars of design that, you know, really every company needs. Uh, and then, you know, we're not doing like huge, uh, we're not going to design your Super Bowl ad, right. But, you know, we'll help you with your, you know, kind of, uh, kind of, mixed media uh, and things that, you know, maybe are, are not, don't require uh, like film production and things like that. Um, but then we said, okay, how do we actually then look at that instead of just the service that you offer, meaning we think of these as different SKUs. So if you think of the SKUs in almost one, the X axis, how do you then build out the Y axis of different price points, right? And, we, and then really you can imagine this kind of grid. How do we then kind of systematically go through and say, how do we take the brand design to the next tier down? How do we take, you know, web design to the next tier down? And ultimately then end up with this kind of, call it three by three matrix of these three different services by these three different price points and help kind of go to market with each of those uh, individually. So right now where we're really focused is in helping kind of make the lowest price point tier of brand design be accessible uh, to every company. And that's, that's starting to get into a lot of our, more of our roots in uh, some of the original hypotheses we had kind of leaving Pinterest and seeing, you know, the types of things you could do if you had, again, a corpus of a hundred billion images as Pinterest does and actually start to uh, do more programmatic methods to uh, again, not automate the designer out of the loop, but actually uh, do a lot of the more basic things and actually get a lot of the call it 90% of the way there uh, without actually having to have anybody involved at all. Um, so that's really where we're focused right now is, is again, kind of the kind of uh, S to in the, in the details like SVG and kind of vector based design generation, as well as the uh, machine learning that can take all these, pri these designs from the web as priors to actually help inform the design that we give to a client based on their preferences. Um, but again, I think as a taking a big zoom out from that, when you think just general framework and large, I think you just have to start with start with the client need, right? And almost before you build anything, just figure out how do you how do you actually validate what the core value proposition is that you have for your client, right? This is I think true for services businesses especially, but also for pure play software companies. How do you just execute on the value proposition, even if you just throw up, you know? Uh, you know, an API and you're handling the requests on the back end yourself, like Stripe did, you know, or you're, you know, you create a Slack bot, but uh, instead of there being a bot on the back end, it's literally you, which I've done in prior work, prior, prior lives. I think the key thing is how do you validate what the customer needs? And again, understand like the full suite of the specifications of that. And then really the price points of that. And if you can get those two things right and make the price points work from a, from a, uh, unit economic perspective, kind of you have yourself in business. So for again, for us, like, again, coming back to startup versus business, this is the biggest thing that's changed, I'd say from the first company is we're really focused on kind of the thinking about this in terms of like, what is the actual like fundamental, you know, economics of the business and how do we de-risk and validate that 
as soon as we can and as fast as we can. Because if we can do that, uh, you know, everything else tends to, to fall in line. Yeah, it's, you're, you know, for, you're definitely, you're thinking about this in a way where I feel like it could be a giant company. You could actually, you could actually make it happen. Like it's all, it, it literally comes down to the unit economics. I mean, obviously you need a good team. You need to be able to deliver the services, but the thing that's going to enable scale or not cripple you is unit economics. Um, it really matters, especially if you're, if you're growing, you know, so um, you know, we'll, we'll leave it with that on uh, Plato. Uh, I, one last question for you though. Um, before we before we finish it off as we're at the top of the hour you got all these people listening they're probably interested in the, you know the conversation we had about freelancers and design and your systems etc um, and uh, they know the question is coming and the question is how can the, the forward-thinking founders community help you do you have an ask for anyone listening um, in in a way that we can assist with what you're working on yeah definitely appreciate that Matt I think just as a as a first order you know the I think you know, mutual benefit is again, we're, we have our, in our referral program, if anybody introduces me, just jm at useplato.com to, you know, a new business client, we'll give, uh, not only provide that person with an awesome service, but also give the referrer 5% of the, of the uh, basket size as a, as a thank you. So I think just as a first order, any people or friends that you have that are in need of, of design, be it brand, web, or product design, please do send them our way. I think at the same time, as a as a you know an offer that we have to the communities that we're a part of and trust, we're also just help, helpful to do a quick design review for folks. So if people again send us send me an email directly or send us to our success team at success at useplato.com. We'd be more than happy to you know help you answer questions like, hey, how's the copy on my website? How's does this positioning seem right? Hey, like you know here's a couple screenshots of my app. Does this kind of uh, UX flow seem to make sense? you know, hey, like this is kind of an, an ad campaign we're thinking about. Does this set of, you know, t uh, targeting and, and creative actually seem to resonate with who this market might be? If people, you know, have any kind of acute design uh, question that they have, we'd be more than happy to help people answer that, again, as a, as a completely free service, just to give thanks back to, to the community. That's awesome. Well, th th thank you for thank you for that. I feel like people will take you up on that because that's awesome. I might even take you up on that. Um, Please do, Matt. If it, just to make sure to make sure we don't miss this. True last question: If, if where on the internet can they find you? Where can they get in touch with you? I guess how can they connect with you and your brand on uh, yeah. on the web? Absolutely. So on our website, uh, useplato.com. That's u s e p p l a t o dot com. Or, you know, on uh, Twitter at Design Plato, also on Instagram, I think are three primary channels. If you want to, people want to find, reach out to me directly, it's just JM, so my first initial, last initial, at useplato.com. And again, I try to uh, maintain inbox zero, so I might be, uh, uh, you know, eating my words on this one, but again, I try to get back to folks quickly if they do have questions or anything that I can help with. Because again, one of the reasons I do genuinely enjoy doing this is that I love helping people. I love to pay, kind of pay it forward in the way that I've been helped in my career, especially using some of the tactics and, uh, you know, skills that, that I've been able to acquire through my own career and through Play-Doh. All right. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks for coming on. Love jamming. Honestly, a little reminiscent of the, of the last year. I thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, keep it up. I think you're doing great work. So, so thank you for coming on to the podcast. I appreciate it, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. All right, I really hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you did, please go to iTunes and give it five stars or give the podcast five stars. Got to compete with the big players, if you know what I mean. And also, if you're trying to compete with people in your industry for your company, you know, if you're a small company, medium-sized company, you want to beat the incumbents, you're going to potentially maybe need some capital. So if you want to get connected to investors um, or at least hold yourself accountable to certain growth goals, then go ahead and sign up for Growth Meter. You can find Growth Meter at growthmeter.co. That's growthmeter.co. And I'll see you over there. You'll get an email once you sign up from me, and we can chat. See you over there, and have a good day. Bye.